At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Hey everyone, Kayla Isabel here, CEO of Startup Canada. I know that you're used to hearing Rick's voice on the show today, uh, but today we're going to be doing a very special interview with one of our friends and partners, Scott, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada. If you want to hear my conversation with Scott on his show, A New Way of Entrepreneurship, check out perspectives.ventureforcanada.ca forward slash podcast. Venture for Canada is on a mission to make Canada the place where the next generation of entrepreneurial leaders get their start. At Startup Canada, we connect entrepreneurs with the tools, community, and support that they need, just like partners at Venture for Canada. Today, I'm so excited to talk to Scott Sturrett. Scott is the founder and CEO of Venture for Canada, a national charity that is driven to foster entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. VFC accelerates careers through training and community. Their programs help young minds kickstart their careers and allow Canada's budding companies to work with eager talent. Scott, I am so excited to learn more about Venture for Canada and talk about something we both live and breathe every single day, and that is entrepreneurship. <laughs> and I think we definitely have some passion behind that uh, in common. So let's kick things off, Scott, with where everything began. Let's take the scene back to when we were both uh, you know, entering into our post-secondary education. Things looked very different than where they, <laughs> what they look like today. What did your life look like, and, and what were you feeling at that time of your life? It's a fun exercise to go through this right now because Venture for Canada is about to turn 10 years old. So mm. it's now been far enough away that it's distant, but it's not far uh, too far away that I don't remember the details of kind of what happened or don't remember them really uh, clearly. So to kind of set the scene, I grew up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and I spent virtually my entire childhood in Nova Scotia. And then I went to university in Washington, D.C., at Georgetown. And when I was at Georgetown, I became involved in a wide range of different entrepreneurial uh, activities uh, from launching a new student organization called D.C. Students Speak that helps uh, post-secondary students in the District of Columbia run for public office. And we were able to actually successfully get seven students elected to public office in the District of Columbia to wow. interning for like a really early stage nonprofit that had like two employees that ended up going um, you know, bankrupt to a uh, interning a large nonprofits that uh, an organization called J Street that had around 50 employees at the time, but had only been founded a couple of years before to also interning at the Council of Foreign Relations, which is like a century old think tank and, and uh, foreign policy uh, nonprofit. And I said all this context because 
at the time, I didn't necessarily self-identify as entrepreneurial. I didn't think about entrepreneurial skills or think about uh, devoting my life to working on entrepreneurial things, even though most of my extracurricular activities were related to entrepreneurship in some kind of way. And right after school, I went to go work at Goldman Sachs. And I also interned at Goldman Sachs before I graduated from university. And I did that because Goldman Sachs was prestigious. Um, it what compensated people well. And it was like a, quote, safe uh, career path. And there was also a lot of social pressure to go to places like Goldman Sachs within the context of Georgetown. And shortly right around when I was starting venture or starting at Goldman Sachs, I, I was really not that happy because I had interned there the summer before. I knew I didn't like it, but I accepted the return offer at, at at, for all of the reasons that I mentioned uh, earlier. And the, I remember I was moving into my first adult uh, apartment um, in Jersey City. And I thought to myself, oh, what about Venture for Canada? And I had been familiar with Venture for America, which has operated in the U.S. for around a dozen years. I had friends who did Venture for America. And at their program, they recruit, train, and support recent grads of American universities to go work at startups and small businesses. And I thought to myself, why not try to replicate that uh, in Canada? So I started doing that on the side. Uh, and then at around a year into my time at Goldman Sachs, I, I said, hey, you know, my passion is more about doing this. And then I left Goldman Sachs and I've been doing Venture for Canada uh, nine years uh, since. And if I was to go back to that period of time in my life, like 2013, 2014, right when I was graduating university and kind of in that early stage of, uh, of kind of creating Venture for Canada, there was a degree of at that time I felt lost. Like I, I knew I wanted to create an impact in my life. I knew I wanted to do interesting work. But I had no, what, no idea of how to do that. Uh, and the path was not clear to me at all. And I share that not to say, oh, what was me? Because I think the situation I face is something that like millions and millions of people do that one's 20s for most people is a period of self-discovery and, and identity formation. And certainly it was for me at that specific uh, period. And at that specific moment in my life, it was that clear direction. And in some ways it was it was realizing something that had been a part of me for a long time, which was that I love entrepreneurship and that I love to be entrepreneurial. Wow. I love that, Scott. And that's so interesting. I didn't realize that you and I, I knew that you had, you know, a blip in, in the U.S., but that's also something that you and I have in common, that I actually grew up in the U.S. Um, and having that, that perspective from both countries, I think is also very textured and interesting when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to, you know, building what has been historically called the American dream. And, you know, we have, so, there's so many um, more charged conversations in entrepreneurship that, that happen south of the border, I feel like, than, than happens in Canada often. And we need to elevate those conversations and really put founders in the Canadian landscape on more of a podium. So I often reflect on, on that balance. Going back to that, that decision of going to Georgetown and going to the U.S., what brought you to the U.S. and not Canada? Clearly, you're very passionate about the Canadian ecosystem now, but what made you go down south first? When I was in high school, the principal of my school had sent a lot of uh, his students over the course of his career to Georgetown. He had worked uh, at schools in Ontario and in Quebec, and uh, he was at towards the end of his uh, career teaching. He actually is still active in his mid-70s in a variety of other things. Uh, but uh, he was ending, I would say, his his actually his K to twelve teaching career because now he teaches in um, universities more. Uh, but I remember he said to me, Scott, like you should apply to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. It is like the perfect place based on your like your interests, your personality, 
And candidly, if uh, Dr. Bennett had never told me to apply to Georgetown or recommended that I apply to Georgetown, I would 100% never have done it. Uh, a family member had actually told me that I had to speak another language to even apply to Georgetown, um, which I was, uh, at the time, unilingual uh, anglophone. That was, that was actually false news. You do have to pass, <laughs> you have to pass a proficiency t- test once you're in your, um, by the time you graduate from the school oh. stores. But I remember Googling, I was like, hey, do you actually need to speak a second language <laughs> to apply to Georgetown? Because I thought it was kind of a weird rule. But it, it's also, I share that just because I think it is also funny of like doing your homework and just like when someone tells you you can't do something, like just double check that that is actually the case. But to answer your question, Kayla, uh, I ended up deciding to, to apply to Georgetown specifically through the advice of this one person. In terms of going to the U.S. for university in general, uh, I was really active in competitive debate when I was in middle school and high school. And there were a lot of my friends from competitive debate who ended up going to the university or going to the U.S. for university. And I sort of began to get my competitive juices um, going. And I loved my time at Georgetown. If I was potentially to go back in time there's a good chance I would have gone, I would have chosen to stay and gone to university in Canada. I think I am a very competitive person and American university process is very competitive. And uh, I think that I kind of got into this, hey, these other people are getting into these places. I'm going to like throw all my energy to make sure that I also get into it. And in retrospect, I put too much degree of self-worth in some ways into like the, into this um, application uh, process. That being said, I loved my experience at Georgetown. I made a lot of great friends. Uh, and in many ways, I probably would never have launched Venture for Canada if I hadn't gone there because Venture for Canada was a direct inspiration from a model that I had seen uh, in, in the United States. So I think it's in life, you don't want to go through with regrets, but I think also just to recognize, like if I was to have kids and things like there was a lot of great universities in Canada and I don't think you need to be entrepreneurial to to, to uh to go or you need to go to the US to be entrepreneurial. That being said, I do think though that the spending time abroad outside of Canada can be really helpful to like make you see different perspectives. Like in general, I think having a global perspective is helpful. And I would give advice to like young Canadians or listeners to like try to spend a portion of your career out of the country. Uh, because even if you want to spend most of your life in Canada, even if you're really passionate about Canada, um, it's important to see the broader world. Uh, and uh, the final anecdote I'll share just related to this is like my grandfather is in his early 90s and like a very successful entrepreneur. Um, and he worked for an American company. He was like the general manager of the Canadian operations. And then he ended up buying that and building a, his own company uh, here in Canada. But he talks about how his, you know, the, the close business relations he had with like scientists and MIT and these like senior American business leaders while he lived in Nova Scotia, inspired him and like pushed him to be like a better version. And he wouldn't have been able to create the successful company that um, he now has today if it wasn't for some of those like formative experiences with people outside of the country. So that's a long answer. And I, I addressed a bunch of different points, but it, I, if there was one kind of point to emphasize is um, it, it is valuable to get international uh, exposure when you think about entrepreneurial skills development. I love that. And just yeah, varying perspectives of talking to folks who have also had international experience or newcomers. Or, there's so many ways that you can even get that in your own backyard. Um, and I think as as entrepreneurs, that variety of experience, that texture, that that lived experience that is constantly evolving, like that serves you in your business life, not only just making you a more interesting person overall as well. Um, I totally agree with with that sentiment. So when you started VFC, 
Um, so you came back to Canada, you had this inspiration, you had all this momentum. What did the organization look like when you came back and how has that evolved to what it is today? So it definitely didn't look like really anything uh, <laughs> Never at, at the beginning. So when I moved back to Canada, Venture for Canada, and to set the scene, this was like May 1st, 2014. Moved back to Canada. I was 22 years old. I was turning 23 at the end of the month. And I was so naive uh, and was just kind of working out of my uh, apartment in Toronto. I was the only person working in Venture for Canada. There was no money. There was like a very bare bones kind of website and really just like a vision of what like we could potentially create in the future. And in terms of to answer this question, I might kind of uh, describe a little bit about how the FCs kind of evolved over time. So the what happened was then a couple months in, we were able to raise like $60,000 in like $2014 um, to uh, hire one person to join me. And that was critical. Like if I we hadn't gotten that 60K, then like, we probably couldn't have gotten things off the ground. And then we launched the first recruitment cycle, started getting the first fellows. There were maybe around 30 fellows in the kind of first cohort of, of Venture for Canada. And we did the first training camp. Uh, and at that time, I was like, now we were saying 23, 24 during that training camp. I had never organized an, a five-week, at the time it was a five-week in-person, full-time training camp in Kingston, Ontario. I relocated from Toronto and lived in a dorm for five weeks with all the other um, fellows. Like now that I'm older, I'm like, wow, that was like really intense. Like not that many people um, do that. And, uh, and a big <laughs> shout out to Patrick, who um, I worked with at that time, who also uh, lived in those dorms with me for like a five week uh, period. Wow. And what is a fellow, Scott? For, for our listeners who might not be familiar with what a fellow is, can you describe what a fellow is? Yeah, it's a great. So a Venture for Canada fellow, we have the Venture for Canada Fellowship Program. In that program, we recruit, train, and support recent grads of Canadian universities to go work at startups and small businesses. The selected participants are called fellows. Um, they go through a month-long training camp. Um, they receive one-on-one coaching and support. Uh, and they work at Canadian startups and receive competitive uh, compensation over the course of the year. And then... They graduate from the program and at a high level, the program exists um, to with the kind of mindset that one of the most effective ways to foster entrepreneurial skills in young people is through recruiting, training and supporting them to work in startups and small businesses that essentially the vicarious experience of working with an entrepreneur teaches you perhaps more than anything of what it actually takes to build something from the ground up. In terms of Venture for Canada, so then we ran that first training camp. At that point, it's kind of like mid-2015. Um, uh, the organization is still super scrappy. We hire a third person to join us in fall 2015. And oh, then kind of fast forward, things are kind of business as usual. Cohorts are more like 50 to 60 fellows kind of per year. 2018, we launched an internship program where we recruit, train, and support current post-secondary students to do internships at startups and small businesses. And then in 2021, we launched a uh, uh, innovative work integrated learning program, which we called the Entrepreneurship Program, where we recruit, train, and support current post-secondary students to do short duration projects that are five to seven hours per week over the course of seven weeks. And they do those projects alongside a team of five other students and are paid competitive stipends by Venture for Canada. And from this early kind of idea of Venture for Canada, where we served nobody, and in the first year, we served only like 30 people. In 2022, there were approximately 3,900 work-integrated learning experiences that were supported by Venture for Canada from coast to coast to coast. 
and over 1,000 Canadian small businesses hired young people through Venture for Canada last year. We now have a staff team of approximately 35 people that are based in six provinces. We have a eight-person board of directors that's also national. Uh, and Venture for Canada is supported by organizations such as the Government of Canada through Employment and Social Development Canada, um, RBC Foundation, um, TD Bank, um, Scotiabank, um, the Hunter Family Foundation, the Donald R. Sobey Foundation, uh, uh, dozens of uh, individual donors across the country, uh, and a variety of consulting kind of agreements that we have with different organizations uh, as well. So we have uh, BFC in 2023, when we're taping this, is very different nine and a half years ago than, than what we once were as an organization. And uh, I can describe later, but I think there's a lot of opportunity of how we continue to grow uh, and evolve in the future as well. Agree. And I love that about, you know, pretty much every single episode of both the Startup Canada podcast, the Startup Women podcast, every founder, every entrepreneur sets an intention or a vision at the beginning of this journey, and then everything unravels and unfolds and shifts. And um, it's it's such an important message for entrepreneurs to relinquish that, that tight grip around what they think they are going to be doing at the beginning of their entrepreneurship cycle and really um, be fluid and flexible with what is going to make the biggest impact, where you're seeing that momentum go, uh, where potential funding is actually going to be available, um, and, and to see your journey in, in experimenting in all these different um, you know, ways of building programs and how to connect with this incredible target audience. Um, it's awesome just to see that extend over such a long period of time, 10 years. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. And, and to your point, Kayla, I do think it's something that's that's critical to recognize is that don't become too beholden to your initial idea because the world is changing so quickly that you need to constantly be updating in response to your external uh, environment. That you keep on just doing the same thing over and over, eventually you're going to make yourself like irrelevant. So in the case of Venture for Canada, our fellowship program has evolved substantially over the last nine years. We have launched new programs. We're continuing to launch new programs. Like five years ago, I could never have anticipated that we were going to be doing a lot of work with international students that's specific to international students. Uh, and likewise, there's things that five years from now Venture for Canada could be doing that I would ha have no ability to kind of anticipate. All this to say is that I think that sometimes when people think of like strategic planning, they think, oh, okay, we're going to do this in year one and year two and year three. And, and to some extent, you can do that on certain things, potentially programs that have been around for a long time. Um, but in general, uh, I think that it's better to more, it's like, how do you set a broad strategic direction and then be responsive to emerging opportunities and be okay to cut things. So I'll share an example is that we did a project through the Future Skills Center that was around reskilling displaced retail workers, an important topic. But there's a lot of organizations that do reskilling work, Pallet Skills, um, and a variety of other you know national organizations. And we reflected on it and said we're not a reskilling organization. That's not our core competency. Um, there's a lot of areas that we can grow in other regards. Um, we're not. We did that research project, but we're not going to pursue and, and get into the reskilling space because it's quite different and requires different skill sets and experiences than what our core kind of competency is. All this to say is that it's like try and experiment and then, and, um, and you know, some things you decide to cut because they're not mission aligned or they don't end up working um, and then double down on the things that do really work. So we've, we've doubled down on the things that really work. And then over time, there's lot, there's, and there's, we've done lots of, you know, I share this because I think a lot of times people just say, oh, we launched a successful thing. But we've launched, we launched an externship program in Alberta that was like not successful at all. It was a little pilot uh, program and then we cut it. So th there's also, it's important to recognize that 
it's a don't don't hold your initial vision too close, but also be willing to constantly try new things and don't be afraid to cut them. Um, if and also don't be afraid of failure because not everything you're going to do is going to work out. I think that one of the important things is when you try new ideas that it's not going to like sink the whole organization when you try that idea. Um, but uh, it's important to be able be willing to take risks and being willing to accept failure sometimes. Hundred percent, and we hear that sentiment so much in the traditional, you know, high growth tech startup kind of environment. But when it comes to nonprofits and charities as well, that lesson also needs to be learned in real time. So I feel like that's a, a helpful reminder across every type of business. And with a leader who's been around for almost a decade now, leading this organization, you've seen it all. Like you've really seen that those ebbs and flows, and what it takes in that very beginning as well to propel you forward and follow that momentum. Um, so you're a great case study in seeing that from a longevity standpoint too. So when VFC is introducing startup leaders to new talent and, you know, creating these bridges and these matches, what do these early interactions look like? Like what, what are both parties really trying to get from these experiences? Because yes, we need talent and we need energy and we need skill sets. And as things evolve in this economy as well, there are so many new things that, you know, I myself feel like I, I can't keep up with. What are the employers and the you know, prospect employees, interns, fellows, what is that dynamic and what does success look like from both of those, um, those folks who are looking to engage with VFC? Young people are looking to learn new skills. They're looking to make an impact. Um, they're looking to have a possible like real responsibility. I think they're, they're looking for a degree of like social connection with their colleagues. Those are some of the main things I think that young people are looking for. They're also looking for like competitive um, compensation, like, um, you know, cost of living is going up, compensation matters. Uh, in terms of companies, they're looking for people who have good like human skills or entrepreneurial skills, the ability to work well with other people, critical thinking, uh, creativity, uh, attention to detail, in some cases, technical skills. I think those are all the kinds of things that um, companies are looking for. Growth mindset, that people who are constantly wanting to, to be better versions um, of themselves uh, I think that those are the things that, that are some of the things that are most important for on the company side. I think success is in essence an alliance. Uh, and I think that this is in, essentially between any employee and uh, employer that for most cases, you're not going to have an employee work in an organization forever. And I'm copying this from Reed Hoffman. He has actually a book called the Alliance, wh which is to say that like employees do like tour of duties in organizations. And the kind of Alliance is that, the employee is committing to work hard to help grow that company over time. And then likewise, the company is committing to help that person get to the next level in their career. One of my favorite interview questions to ask people when potentially hiring them is what is the job that you want after this job? And where, why it's telling is to see like, is there the, can the employer fulfill its end of the bargain? If the next job the person wants has nothing, like the, the job they're applying to does not help them get that in any kind of way, then often it's not a good fit because the alliance is not genuine. Like the the employer, the employee is not getting some, what they really what they want out of like the the arrangement. So that's a high level in terms of I think what employers are looking for, what employees are looking for, and what success looks like. And are you seeing a lot of these folks come from specific programs or focusing on an industry, or are you seeing actually more of this generalist approach um, that they're still trying to figure out where they might want to, you know, proceed in their future entrepreneurial venture? Like what industries or um, topics or even specific skill sets are a lot of these fellows coming in with? 
In terms of the more generalist uh, skills, I think the skills that people have or, and to some extent are looking to develop would be the ability to work with other people, um, critical thinking, um, creativity. Those more skills. Uh, Interesting. I think that those are the skills that are, in many cases are, are most in demand. I also think that depending on the industry, te certain technical skills absolutely hmm. are things that people are looking to, to develop. But I think that in some ways, the rise of ChatGPT and, and um, increased artificial intelligence, my theory will make is that technical skills are actually going to become a lot less important mm. um, in the future because th even the you look at the rise of like no code websites and the, the I mean, it's just the software engineers aren't going away and they're, they're, they'll be important for a lot of things. But I think that in the future, there's going to be a lot more things that people can do with very little technical skills. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be more the ability to know how to use technology mm. effectively will be something that will be really important. And what do I mean by like know how to use technology? Because that is a pretty broad uh, statement. Mm. It's like the emerging role of prompt engineers, which are basically people who, who are skilled at writing prompts uh, to chat GPT. Uh, and uh, they can write really good prompts that like get like a great, like kind of um, uh, exactly what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And I, I've just increasingly been using ChatGPT and it's all about like how you use it, right? Like, and, and it's kind of, you you develop that skill over time of like knowing what the exact like prompt is. Like you, you put in the prompt and then like make it friendly, make it serious, like little things like that even. <laughs> and, you're, and then I, it's been that kind of a trial and error of my own self. And I'm far from like an expert in terms of how to use it. Um, so uh, to recap, I would say that these kind of general skills, I think, will be increasingly important. Technical skills in some roles will be important, but the ability to understand technology and in some ways integrate technology uh, and use technology effectively in, in a way that doesn't really require technical skills. It's more like the, a degree of like know-how and common sense is something that's going to be increasingly important, particularly, I think, as it relates to like, in some ways, like, and I think knowing how to use artificial intelligence tools will be the equivalent of like 15 or 20 years ago of like knowing how to use the internet. Yeah. Yeah. I love that comparison. And that like sentiment of resourcefulness, like that as, as an employer, like I look for that in every single person that I hire and just that spirit that things you cannot possibly keep up with every single thing that continues to evolve. But if you are researching and experimenting and trying to, you know, use chat GPT and other, you know, creative ways, I love to see that energy. Um, and entrepreneurs are served really beautifully with that, um, not even so much skill set, but that ability not to be an expert, but to figure out how they might be able to dabble and and use it in a way that sort of works for them within their specific context. Um, but that resourcefulness, I think, is is so important. And in the news, and you know, as as people find jobs and the sentiment around youth and you know youth maybe not wanting to work or this negative um, commentary that we're actually seeing more and more often, specifically during the pandemic as well. I'd love to get your sense. Of that, are you seeing students still maintaining that resourcefulness, that adaptability, that energy? Um, what are you seeing them bring to the table? What are they interested in? Um, what are the problems that they're looking to solve? What is the energy of Canada's sort of next entrepreneurial structure? Are they feeling optimistic? Are they feeling, you know, sort of that that propelling forward? Or are you seeing that stagnate a little bit? Would love your perspective on that. Um, it's interesting. There was a study that just came out from RBC like a, a couple of days ago. That was a survey of young Canadians and kind of how they're feeling. And um, as it relates to work, and one of the things that came up uh, as part of that study is that compared to like the last couple of years, 
Canadian youth are more optimistic. I think it was like 50% are like optimistic about work in some kind of way, but it's still lower than like pre-pandemic. So as we tape this in July, 2023, I think that things are improving compared to the last, you know, kind of three or four dark years um, that that were kind of pandemic and post-pandemic for a lot of young people. And we're kind of getting back on track. Uh, In terms of, I think, point two is that I do think that there's a broader issue from the pandemic, that there's a need for more resilience um, in young people. That's to say many young people are very resilient. But I think that the rise of perfectionism, uh, which is linked to everything from neoliberal competition to uh, and overly intense parenting practices uh, to to, uh, potential issues in the education system, um, has sometimes resulted in, in a gener- to also the rise of social media and the negative impact that that has on mental health. I do think uh, this is not to blame young people. I think sometimes in these conversations, there's a sense of, oh, young people are inherently more like vulnerable and that there's just issues with them. I think that there are broader, whenever there are these broader issues, um, it's not any individual's fault. It's like there's a collective societal like failing. It's like when people talk about the mental health crisis and people say, oh, there's mental health crisis. Well, the reason the mental health crisis is because they're deep social issues that, that are that are causing rot, right? Like it's not like it's not just all of a sudden people are having more mental health issues. Like th- th- there are people are feeling anxious for no reason. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Like there's generally like a an up an increase in mental health issues is uh, is in most cases highly correlated with social factors. Oh, yeah, it's an indicator. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, the, and what's interesting is the business of Council of Canada and their skills report shows that employers are saying that young people are lacking resilience and kind of grit. Mm. I think the third point though, which is more of a broader caveat is I think every young generation, the older generation say this generation is more entitled. This generation is more um, soft. This generation switches jobs more. Certainly I'm now 32 when I was entering the workforce I felt there was similar-ish narratives around uh, millennials and how millennials kind of approach uh, work. Um, so I think it's to say that some of when I feel like probably we're I feel like we as a society have constantly the same conversation about every new generation that enters the workforce. Yeah, that is somewhat laden around like stereotypes of young people that is not like productive in, in a mm. lot of cases. Like for instance, the stereotype that that Gen Z like hop jobs more often than other generations actually not true. Every young generation since post World War II has had a history actually of hopping jobs a lot uh, right after they they graduate. So all this to say is that is that I think that there is a legitimate um, issue around the need for more resilience in young people and more grit. Um, That's not their fault. That is because of deeper social issues. And I think that there are a lot of like other more pernicious negative, like stereotypes of young people that are sometimes shared that uh, like the job hopping one, for instance, or like the entitlement one that I think aren't fair and are some some cases just like (laughs) ageism against young people in certain contexts. No, that's, that's, I, I, I love that answer. And when it comes to specifically the resilience and grit side, fast track to that is entrepreneurship. <laughs> I feel, feel like that's something that really, when you're putting your entire um, ethos and all of your energy and all of your passion into one thing, and you're, you know, navigating the trials and tribulations, the personal consequences, the professional, all of that, uh, we see entrepreneurs being described as inherently very resilient and, and filled with grit. And, and those were words that came up so much during the pandemic. 
in the absence of potentially starting a venture, how do younger people develop that resilience and grit in high school, in academic institutions, maybe in those first couple of jobs? Like, how do you, what do you think the answer is to solving for that urgently, understanding this is such a huge gap that we're seeing right now? Yeah, uh, I think there's a couple of ones. I think one is letting go of perfectionism. I think, uh, well, research demonstrates objectively that rates of perfectionism are much higher today than they were 30 or 40 years ago amongst young people. And these are huge longitudinal data sets of like 40,000 uh, post-secondary students in Canada, uh, the US and the United Kingdom uh, that shows like a 35% increase in perfectionism. When someone is perfectionistic, they are more vulnerable to setbacks because like they set everything in their life that, oh, everything needs to be perfect. Everything I have to win kind of all the time, but that's just not like life. Um, so I think part of it is, is retraining people to let go of perfectionism. And that means embracing healthy striving, focusing more on the journey rather than the outcome. Uh, that means being recognizing that like perfection is impossible, that failure is a good thing. So in some cases it's, or at least provides learning opportunities. So I'd say that the first bit is, um, coaching young people to move away from perfectionism as a broad kind of thing. Um, if I was to say a second advice for, for young people, and I'll start getting into a little bit more tactical advice. Um, a second piece that I would say is put yourself in situations where you're outside of your comfort zone. Like, I think that the more that you take risks, um, the more you become comfortable with failure and, and making mistakes. There's a great um, uh, inter or the great uh, entrepreneur, a Canadian entrepreneur named Sukinder Singh Cassidy, who is now the CEO of Zero, which is one of the largest accounting software yeah. um, companies um, in the world. Um, we've interviewed her at the, on the VFC podcast as well. So if you want to check out Google Sukinder Singh Cassidy Venture for Canada. And um, one of the things that she talks about in, in her book, Choose Possibility, is risk taking is like a muscle that you like build up over time. And I think part of it is like, is how do you like constantly like build that muscle and you kind of get out of your comfort zone. So I'll just share like a personal example of thing I do is I, um, I have a little food tour bit side business that I do in Toronto where I take people out on tours like three to four times like a year and people pay tickets via TripAdvisor uh, and their food and history tours are like three to four hours long. I do them on the weekends, little side thing. I did um, not know this, Scott. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's a fun uh, and learned a lot about the Junction kind of high park area, which is where we we focus our tours on. And I share that because sometimes I'm like, okay, this is a little random. Like I'm running this charity. Like, why am I like doing this like random food? tour? And I think other people too, but sometimes like, this is kind of like, why is he doing this? Mm. But part of it is it actually, it's a good, like I've been doing BFC now for like 10 years and it's good to like get out of my comfort zone and sometimes do something that is like completely different. Uh, and I actually think it's good for like my personal, I also, it's good for my personal development and I actually, uh, authentically enjoy it in most cases. And maybe if some people on the tour are a little annoying, less so, but generally I, en I enjoy, um, the, the tours and, and being a, being a tour guide. So I just share that in the sense of like, when you're, if you're a young person who can't listening, like join a club that maybe has something, nothing to do, right? Like take up a sport that learn pickleball, like, like do something that you have never done before and fail at it and then get better at it. And um, I think that that's another important piece of just like kind of being willing to kind of go out of your comfort zone. I would say a third piece of advice is don't let your, um, make sure your parents aren't like trying, protecting you too much uh, or guardians. Uh, and I think that, that often the, 
but good intentions of parents can be really negative uh, in terms of overly protecting kids and that that just makes them more vulnerable like later on. Like Nassim Tlaib has a great book, Anti-Fragile, talks about in general, like if you deprive a system of stress, what you actually do is you make it fragile. Um, like, uh, and I think the same goes for children and young people. Like if you try to make yourself like as like, it's kind of like safe in a box and like, you know, uh, you're actually making yourself really like vulnerable because you're not, it's like, if you're, it's like, if you never work out, right. Then over time, everything like atrophies and same goes with your brain. Um, so I think that one important piece is just like constantly, you know, within while not being perfectionistic, but, um, uh, yeah, con constantly pushing yourself, um, I think to, to be uh, a better version and making sure, you know, your parents aren't um, depriving you of, of challenge. Uh, and if I was to say maybe a few other things that around grit would be, I think a fourth one, actually, there's two other things that we'll, I'll share. Uh, the fourth one is actually learn a language different than your native language. Ooh, actually, that's I think a good that, one, Scott. I like that. I think that the, and I take weekly French lessons, uh, J'aime l'opportunité de pratiquer mon français un peu, mais je parle avec un accent très anglais. On peut parler un peu en français, Scott. But but it, I actually think learning another language is very humbling because like sometimes there's basic words. So good. And, and I'm often having when I speak in French, there's always like a degree of embarrassment when I'm dealing with mm -hmm. francophones because like they know better than me and I'm like speaking like a child sometimes or maybe like like somebody but like but it's like it is important particularly I think for people of like anglophone privilege in a world that is like very anglophone um it is beneficial I think to uh to learn another language um obviously if English isn't your first language um uh and it becomes newcomer then that that in and of itself <laughs> has been uh, I imagine uh, something that, that has been, um, you know, it's a lot of work to learn another language. And I have a lot of appreciation for people who are like English as a second language in Anglophone parts of, of Canada. Um, and if I would say fifth would be try to learn um, about grit and resilience vicariously through other people. So that can be like reading biographies, understanding other people's life stories. But I, I actually think reading biographies can be really helpful to understand that everyone goes through substantial challenges in their life. In some ways, the more successful someone is, the more pain that they have had in their lives. And uh, I think the more that somebody appreciates that and is willing to accept the pain that is potentially necessary to have like an impactful uh, life, uh, the more that they have like realistic like expectations. Like ha there's the great um, Tim Urban you know thing where he says like happiness equals reality minus um, expectations. And I think that one of the challenges is that if you go into life thinking everything's going to be easy, um, then uh, you're set up for like constant like setback. And I think one good thing in entrepreneurship is sometimes you just smacked around so much by random things. And it's just so um, like, you're just kept constant that it can like, I feel like now doing much for Canada 10 years where the, the, not that things phase me way less. Cause I'm like, oh, okay, this is just like another like wrench being like thrown uh, and uh, you know, and having to kind of deal with it. Um, but I think for a lot of young people, if you don't, if you haven't had to catch a lot of wrenches and you haven't had a lot of um, issues kind of come up, sometimes learning from other people's experiences at the beginning of your career can kind of, I think, set a more realistic tone for like what life is like. And mm -hmm. the fact that like life is often very challenging. Uh, and I've had a pretty actually, I'm, I mean, I've had Venture for Canada. It hasn't always been easy, but in the context of like lots of privilege and, and, um, and uh, you know, things were easier for me in, in many ways. 
although not all. Uh, and um, yeah, I think having realistic expectations is an important piece. So those would be five different pieces of advice that I would have in terms of how to foster that kind of inner sense of, of grit and, and resilience. That sounds like a book right there, Scott. I think you've got yourself a nice structure to, to start pulling from. That's, I, I agree with every single one of those. And even as you're illustrating them through, I'm thinking and reflecting on my own personal experiences that also illustrate those exact points. Um, and, and to your point around you know, listening to autobiographies or listening to the perspectives of others who might be in an aspirational position that you want to get to, actually hearing that journey and and all those ebbs and flows. Yes, it's very perspective, just practically trying not to make the same mistakes that, that some folks have made um, and avoiding that. But also looking at things from a very different time horizon has been a really helpful tool for me that, you know, I might compare myself to somebody who has had a 35 or 45 year career. And obviously you're going to have so many more experiences in that time horizon than I have, you know, in my early thirties. And, and I know I've shared this with you in the past that that age element has always been something that, um, I've been more insecure about of being this young leader and navigating through things for the first time. And many entrepreneurs face that as well, right? Especially if you're coming out of school and starting your business at 24, 25, um, listening to people at a bigger time horizon can also be really encouraging for you to give you a little bit of grace and say, okay, I'm looking at maybe a three-month moment versus what is actually going to be my life, which is going to be, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of building businesses or, you know, different elements of your career. And it gives you just a moment of like, okay, these next three months are so small in the bigger scale of things. Um, and the more that you approach things a little lightly, you experiment, you see what works, what you're interested in, that flexibility is such a gift because then it doesn't you know, bombard you with all of this negative self-talk and pressure and, and to your point around expectations. That's a really hard thing when so many of us have been built as perfectionists and we have to build the best business and we're hyper-competitive and all these different elements. Uh, so I love that point. Um, I also love the... Um, getting inspiration from things around you that actually have nothing to do with your business. That's the beauty in so many of the best businesses that we've seen pop up. You know, you think of a Steve Jobs kind of example of getting inspiration from, uh, uh, what was it? The, the, not stenography, but um, uh, typography. Yeah, calligraphy. That's the word I'm looking for. From calligraphy and, you know, all of these, these different elements that then built Apple and the intersections of seemingly completely different elements um, of, of your our world. That's where the beautiful intersections of really strong, powerful businesses can come from. Um, and I find that even in my friends and, you know, family, getting inspiration from my partner who's a carpenter and building things in a very different way than I build things. Um, and midwives giving, you know, one of my best friends is a midwife and she gives me a totally different appreciation for what is urgent and what is actually a crisis and what is actually, you know, something that needs to be dealt with toot sweet kind of idea. Um, so just constantly using the world around you as inspiration is such a simple thing that every single person listening to this podcast or any other podcast could do in real time, um, which is also nice because we, we only have so many moments in the day, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So, something that I uh, can struggle with uh, to the point about only so many moments. Uh, it, I often will have thoughts, oh, I need to be more productive in this specific moment. Why aren't mm -hmm. I doing this? And then it can give this, some ways I have this constant productivity mind, which I, by the way, I think that a lot of people um, have. Anyway, I share this just to say that I think like perfectionism is something that I like every day have to deal with and kind of like unlearn in different kinds of ways. Because um, it can be very ambitious, but it's also kind of recognizing like, okay, it's good to take like a chill pill. I'll share just even an example today. 
I was after work yesterday, I was reading um, uh, actually a great novel, uh, The Three Body Problem, um, which I highly recommend to listeners. I can describe more detail about it afterwards. But I fell asleep um, for like just 10 minutes while I was reading um, uh, on uh, this couch outside. And my foot got like sore. Like I somehow, I don't know what happened, but I like somehow like sprained my foot when I was like sleeping. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But then, um, uh, and it's not like that bad, but it's just like, it was sore, but I was just like, oh, it's just like stiff. But then I still ended up going to yoga uh, last night. And it was because I was like, no, I need to exercise today. Like I have a rule. And then I left yoga. I'm like, oh my God, my foot is like pounding. Like it impacted my ability to fall asleep last night. Um, It's still moderately sore this morning. Um, and if I was to go back in time, uh, I would have, I should have been like, absolutely not. Like, like, I don't need to be perfectionistic to kind of go out and, and do that. Or even this morning, I was like, oh, I need to go for a run. It's so beautiful out I want, but I'm like, no, like, well, unfortunately, my ankle is has this weird um, sleep thing, which I've, n- I've never had before. Um, so yeah, it's, and it's, oh, so it's okay to rest and like heal sometimes. Like it's not, um, but it's something that I have, I have a, I think a lot of entrepreneurial people have this like struggle, right? Between wanting to be ambitious, wanting to be, you know, the best version of themselves, kind of like the Tim Ferriss productivity type people. Um, And then on the flip side of like, also just enjoying life and not pushing yourself to the point where like you have like, you know, injuries and things. So hopefully that that is a more humorous, uh, very present uh, mind example of just where I think uh, it's important to like unlearn perfectionistic uh, Mm. tendencies. Totally. That resonates so deeply with me, Scott, <laughs> in, in such a visceral way. I feel that in my bones. Um, and it's, it's funny, even listening to those types of stories, right? That's It only impacts you as well in these moments. We are our own worst enemies in so many of those perfectionist moments that you going to yoga impacts no one else <laughs> than, than it does you, right? And, and holding on to all those little moments. Um, that's, that's such a great reminder for folks. And a, a struggle in building high quality businesses or, you know, making sure that you you are excellent, but not perfect. Like that's such a hard line for so many founders to be balancing. Um, and, and I experience it uh, every day as well. So you're in good company folks who are listening to the podcast today, if that resonates with you. So back over a little bit uh, more to VFC, because I, I, I still have a couple of questions I'd love to drill in on, on that side. Um, and as it comes to Entrepreneurship. You know, we've talked a lot about the the pain points um, and the emotion behind building businesses and the energy required and and the complexity of what it really takes to start a company. Um, and one of the major things that we've heard at Startup Canada um, that's actually gotten progressively worse year over year that we've measured in our census is this idea of too much information out there, or too many resources, or not being able to keep up with the new programs and the new initiatives. And during the pandemic, many new initiatives actually being accessible now online across the entire country. And folks feeling this um, complete overwhelm in not knowing where to start, where to access things first, in what order, um, and that actually adding to the burden of this initial building block sort of foundation of starting a business. So I'd love to get your sense. In VFC scope, are you seeing this happen with you know university students or folks that are potentially entering into the programs? Are they seeing that information a bit more powerfully of like, look at all these different opportunities for me. Um, how is VFC sort of streamlining some of those opportunities a little bit more more concretely and streamlined so that 
um, folks are getting the right resource at the right time as they're entering into this slightly different entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, the resource fatigue is definitely um, can be an issue, particularly when there's like a plethora of federal programs, provincial, municipal, the nature of kind of Canadian um, service delivery. Mm-hmm. Venture for Canada, we like we don't play a role in trying to like aggregate kind of like information in terms of all the programs. Um, I think it's an important um, topic to our point about mission. It's not our mission. I think it's a great thing that like you folks um, do. Um, the the most that we would try to do that is just to kind of streamline access to our own programs. So having like one employer intake form for everything. Um, and then we kind of like triage based on like interest um, in kind of, uh, so we try to create a streamlined approach to our own programs, um, but it's not, uh, it's not within scope of kind of Venture for Canada's uh, mission to try to aggregate kind of all of the different uh, program opportunities um, that, that are out there, even though it is like a really laudable goal. And that, what I'll share this is I think it's an important in non-for-profits and for-profits to kind of, it's like to a degree of like sticking in your lane, like what are you really good at? That's not our like core competency, right? Uh, and um, consequently, um, we're, it's not something we would would uh, focus on. I love that. And you can't be all things to all people. And Scott is showcasing that right now, which is something I really admire around the leadership of VFC and um, really trying to make the biggest impact in those particular lanes. And I think that's why VFC has built such quality programs over the last you know 10 years, uh, which is maybe a perfect segue into tell us about VFC's programs a little bit more. So we've been talking about a couple of different elements that have you know started 10 years ago. Now things have evolved so much. Where are things now with VFC and how do employers and um, you know, aspiring fellows or interns or, or folks who want to enter into the program, where do they find information? They can find more information about Venture for Canada on ventureforcanada.ca. Uh, and then there's a separate page for employers and there's a separate page for, uh, for young people. Uh, in terms of the three programs at a high level, there's the fellowship program, which I described earlier, that's for recent grads, our internship program, that's for current students to do full-time internships that are three to four months long. Uh, and there's our entrepreneurship program where we recruit, train, and support current post-secondary students to do short duration projects that are five to seven hours per week uh, over the course of seven weeks. From an employer perspective, there's no wage subsidies for the fellowship program. Uh, for the internship program, there's wage subsidies of between five to $7,000 per student hired. And for our entrepreneurship program, uh, Venture for Canada covers 100% of the costs uh, of the student working um, on the company. So if you're looking to hire students, Venture for Canada is able um, to support you financially if you're a small business. Um, And the vast majority of the companies we work with are very small businesses. Uh, And um, last year, we flowed through almost $11 million of wage uh, subsidies and stipends to small businesses across Canada. So um, we, uh, we love, you know, uh, working with the government of Canada to support providing, uh, helping small businesses with financial support in order to hire these young people on. So I know there might be employers listening and just wanted to kind of give that context that through, uh, two of our programs, we're able to provide that financial support. We will also have, as, as I mentioned, um, and if you're listening, um, kind of 2024 and beyond to this episode, a program that's around helping international students enter into the workforce. Uh, and we also have an annual All Things People Conference, uh, which is focused on helping small businesses enhance their human resources capabilities, with the next conference taking place in uh, likely kind of April 2024. Amazing. Keep your eyes posted, everybody. I can say it was an amazing conference that I attended this year and uh, lots of helpful 
sort of not even taboo topics, but but things that you know are, are deeply complicated around building people organizations, right? This is not easy stuff that can just be read in a textbook. Um, so great, great uh, overview there, Scott. Do you have any specific examples, even of the types of you know pairings that you've had, or any sort of shining stars that uh, that you've had the pleasure of working with over the last couple of years? Yeah, I can definitely mention a bunch of different uh, examples uh, in terms of fellowship program. One great example is Shivani Chitalia, who joined Enterstore um, in the first year of Venture for Canada. And she's actually still at this company like nine years later. Wow. Uh, she's now the director of partnerships. Uh, and Enterstore is one of the largest energy storage developers um, in Canada, uh, founded by a great Canadian um, entrepreneur, uh, Netfer Sharon. Uh, and Shivani is forming partnerships with different First Nations um, in Canada around energy storage projects. Uh, most notably, um, she recently formed a major partnership with Six Nations of the Grand River, and um, they're developing a very large energy storage uh, project um, there. Um, so she's a great example of like an entrepreneurial fellow still at the same company, creating a lot of impact within the company. Uh, another great example of an entrepreneurial uh, fellow who's had a lot of success is Chris Grouchy, who is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Convictional that's raised uh, approximately $50 million of funding. Uh, and uh, is a leading kind of B2B software company. Um, he's, for being early career, has raised a lot of money, had a ton of success. Uh, and um, yeah, he, he's a great example of somebody who's gone from fellowship program to founding eventually their own company. Uh, in terms of other examples of uh, different kind of employers, there's an organization called Smart Ice um, that works in uh, Northern Canada uh, around um, uh, tracking of, uh, of ice. Cool. Uh, and um, uh, we've had uh, in leveraging kind of indigenous knowledge um, to do so. And we've had a lot of venture for Canada interns work with them over the years, including interns relocate from different parts of, of Canada. Um, but they're a great example of uh, a um, kind of intern kind of success story. Um, on the entrepreneurship uh, program uh, side, the students work on a wide range of different projects. Um, and I'm actually, I now have a quarterly meetings where like I meet with venture for Canada program participants to like, further learn stories. But one great example uh, recently is uh, Upside Foundation of Canada and with the former colleague Juanita. Um, she's working with a team of entrepreneurs on like a data project um, for their um, organization because they have a lot of data from all of their different kinds of uh, employer partners. And they're very, Upside is just Juanita, a uh, very small organization. Um, so a great example of how um, we work with not just like SMEs, but also sometimes startup support organizations um, on kind of uh, very kind of innovative projects that can help those organizations get to the next uh, level. Uh, and yeah, those are those are some good examples of kind of a high level of um, interns, entrepreneurs, fellows who are going on to um, do innovative things through their work. No shortage of success stories. I love it, Scott. So final question for you. Um, what What has been sort of your proudest moment at VFC or what, what are you most proud of looking at all these different things that you've done over the last 10 years? What stands out? The thing I'm most proud of is the Venture for Canada community. I think we've been able to foster uh, a community of an amazing group of people. Um, we had almost 100 people attend our most recent fellow alumni summit in Kingston, which was uh, fantastic. And they came from all across like North America. And the fact that 100 people were willing to take like a full like three days to, to participate in an alumni summit is pretty awesome. Not that many alumni communities would be able to garner that high level. Like that was almost one in four of our alumni um, from the fellowship program. Uh, but also we have an employer advisory council. We have all things people conference. We have people from our um, from Saskatchewan who are employer partners fly into our all things people conference in Toronto. 
Uh, and uh, I share this in the sense that I think that we there's like an amazing community of people um, at Venture for Canada across our employers, our fellows, our alumni, our, our broader program participant community that um, support one another. Network building is one of the three strategic pillars of Venture for Canada. Uh, and uh, we intend to do a lot of work to kind of foster um, these kind of entrepreneurial uh, networks, because I think that that's important for everything from equity, diversity, inclusion, and providing access to, to folks who um, are from marginalized communities to networks that can help them um, in their careers. But also just in general, I think that it's helpful for socio-emotional well-being. It's helpful for career success. The, the, um, there's the famous paper, The Strength of Weak Ties, which talks about just how in general your weak ties in life are really important for your career. And one of the things Venture for Canada aims to do is provide the opportunity to both develop really strong ties. There's been people who met their like spouses through Venture for Canada. Um, but also the opportunity to meet like a really broad network of people that can be helpful in different kinds of ways. So the Venture for Canada community, um, which is now like thousands of people, is probably one of the things that I am most um, kind of proud of. And I'm looking at a book right up there called The Startup Community Way yes. by um, Brad Feld. Yeah. Yeah. Which is an excellent book. And we try to do it's it's how to provide ongoing support to the community. Um without being kind of too top down, um, which is always a balance. Um, but uh, proud of the community that we fostered and looking forward to see how we can continue to support the community to grow in the future. Amazing. We will be watching and supporting on the sidelines, Scott. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Canada podcast today. I've learned even more about you, which is fabulous. Um, and definitely recommend to all of our listeners to check out All Things VFC. Uh, we'll have lots of links attached to today's episode, including our part one of our conversation uh, that Scott and I had a few weeks back. Thanks so much, listeners. Thanks so much, Kayla. That was awesome.